Good afternoon. It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, August 4th. Petersburg's municipal election had many contested races, from the library board to the public safety board and all the way up to the borough assembly. Just over a third of the island's population turned out to vote, with 1,250 ballots cast. Here's more on the unofficial election results. Petersburg voters overwhelmingly passed ballot proposition one with 872 yes votes and 311 no. This means borough employees are free to serve on the borough assembly, planning commission, hospital board, and the school board. But it would also exclude them from running for any board or commission that directly oversees their work. Voters handed sitting school board vice president Katie Holmland another term with 882 votes. There were 23 write-in ballots for the school board seat, the most of any race. The race for all three open seats on the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board were uncontested. Amber Burrell came in with 951 votes and Greg Kowalski with 946. Both of them took three-year terms. Adam Castor took a one-year term with 813. The three seats on the Harbor Board were also uncontested. Board Chair Bob Martin will keep his seat. He came in with the most votes at 888. Incumbent Scott Roberge got 820, and newcomer Joel Randrup got 861. The final uncontested race was for the local planning commission. All three incumbents kept their seats. Marietta Davis, who came in at 717, Chris Fry at 789, and Heather O'Neill with the most votes at 852. For the two open seats on the borough's public safety board, Mark Tosillo swept, taking the most votes at 641. Stanley Yort is projected to take the other seat, coming in narrowly ahead of the other candidates at 409 votes. The runner-ups are Jacob Slavin with 400 votes, Russell Tinas with 324, and Tony Vinson with 388. There are three open seats for the library board. The projected winners are Marilyn Manish Miucci with 507 votes, Lizzie Thompson with 726, and Mary Ellen Anderson with a whopping 840 votes. Joanne Tinas and Tina Bushman fell behind them with 430 and 447 votes, respectively. The race was tight for the three seats on the hospital board, which could determine the fate of the board's new hospital project. Board President Jared Cook with 891 votes and Secretary Marlene Cushing with 798 are both projected to win another three-year term. Newcomer Don Koenigs fell behind them at 441 votes. For the one-year term on the hospital board, Micah Hasbrook pulled ahead with 597. Her opponent for the seat, incumbent Jim Roberts, had 519 the race for the two borough assembly seats was the tightest of all. The projected winners are political newcomers Rick Perkins with 593 votes and Rob Schwartz with 695, the highest tally for any assembly candidate. Perkins is neck and neck with Jay Stanton Greger, who came in just five votes short at 588. Assembly incumbent Jeff Miucci had 540 votes. But it's not quite over yet. 
election staff still have to count 24 absentee ballots. There are also four question ballots, and the state of Alaska has to decide whether or not they're valid. The borough will count the remaining ballots and release the official results at the election certification meeting on Monday, October 9th. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon use what's called mark selective sport fishing to help conserve wild king salmon. Anglers can only keep hatchery kings that have their fins clipped, a marking practice that's done at hatcheries before the juvenile fish are released. It's really about trying to vet another approach. Judy Lum is the state supervisor for sport fishing in southeast Alaska. And so it was like, okay, well, they do it down here. Can it work for us? And if it can work for us, in what situations, what conditions, or can it be broad brush, or does it have to be very specific? Could it be region-wide or just in specific areas? Lum stresses that they are only studying the possibilities. They don't know if a mark-selective fishery would help or hinder king salmon stocks, or whether the benefits outweigh any potential costs. We have all these tools in our toolbox, so to speak, for management. And this would be just one additional tool to the toolbox. The question originated within the Pacific Salmon Commission. The commission is a regulatory group of U.S. and Canadian governments overseeing that salmon management is fair in both countries. Alaskans involved with the commission asked the state's Department of Fish and Game to consider the potential for a mark selective fishery in Southeast. The department contracted with the University of Washington to do the study using grant money. But so far, Alaskans haven't been receptive to the idea. The state has held community engagement meetings in Juneau, Ketchikan, Klawak, and Sitka. And Lum says they've heard a lot of concerns. Derek Anderson attended the meeting in Klawak. A lot of people are upset. He and his wife own a fishing lodge in Craig on Prince of Wales Island. He says the meeting was standing room only and full of emotion. Subsistence, commercial, and sport users came together. The main voice was no, this is not a good program for Southeast Alaska in any way, shape, or form. Anderson says they'd rather keep things the way they are and fish by harvest limits, which recently has been a few fish per day for residents and two to three fish per season for non-residents. He says targeting just hatchery kings would hurt more fish. There's just not enough hatchery fish in our waters to make that whole thing viable. If you're out there having to fish for hours on end to look for a hatchery fish and you're turning back wild fish after wild fish after wild fish, a lot of those fish end up dying. Fishermen in Sitka felt the same. Roughly three dozen people participated in the community meeting, including 74-year-old Eric Jordan. He's a lifelong troller and says everyone was cordial, but no one wanted the program. I think there was a lot of skepticism in the audience that this would be a good way to go here. Jordan is a self-described conservationist and has participated in fish policy for decades from local fish advisory councils to the State Board of Fish. He says for the program to work, it would have to address the harm of catch and release. In the salt waters of Southeast Alaska, you're going to need to change the rules to minimize mortality. How many kings in Southeast are wild or hatchery varies by location. It's complicated because most of the kings originate in non-Alaska areas, both wild and hatchery stocks, and not all hatchery fish are marked. And there isn't hard data that the program is working elsewhere. 
Mark's selective fisheries have been ongoing for about 20 years in some locations in Washington. But has it really been successful? The jury is still out, says Anne Baudreau. She's an associate professor at the University of Washington conducting the state study. There's so many different variables to that. And it's actually been a really hard question to answer. So she says something like it may or may not work in Alaska. Mark selective fisheries are not a one-size-fits-all approach. The way that they have been implemented and the way that they've been managed has been different depending on where they've, you know, where they've taken place. The study results are expected to be completed by next spring. Reporting for Coast Alaska, in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Another opportunity for Southeast Alaskans to learn about the study and comment on it is coming up in a virtual meeting tonight at 7 p.m. The Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association announced yesterday morning that they were awarded $700,000 from the U.S. Department of Energy. The new funding is intended to steer the commercial fleet away from their old diesel engines. The project is called the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association Boat Energy Transition Accelerator, or Alpha Beta, and it's geared toward bringing hybrid and full electric engines to small boat fishing. The project will build off Alpha's work with the National Renewable Energy Labs in 2021, which plans to retrofit a Sitka-based 36-foot commercial fishing boat named Igata with a new hybrid engine. Linda Bankin is the executive director of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association. She couldn't be reached for comment, but in a written press release, Bankin said the new project will, quote, transition the fishing fleet toward clean energy, mitigate climate change, and ensure the long-term viability of Alaska's small boat fisheries. According to the release, it's not just the environment that'll benefit from the switchover. It could be a win-win for longliners and locals alike. The cleaner, more efficient engines should reduce operational costs and accelerate fleet performance. Alpha Beta says it would leverage the new funds to work with Alaska businesses and academic institutions to create new jobs and promote tech innovation in Alaska's maritime sector. Longlining is a quota-based season, so many longliners use the windows of time when they're not longlining to work in other fisheries, like crabbing, gill netting, and even sea cucumber diving. So if the longlining vessels get a green update, it might also passively cover lots of other fisheries. However, upgrading and installing even one diesel motor could cost up to a quarter million dollars, depending on the boat. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. The story has been changed to reflect that the vessel Igata has not been retrofitted with a new hybrid engine, and it's also just 36 feet long. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has fined one of Alaska's biggest fishing companies nearly a million dollars for Clean Water Act violations. American Seafoods is the world's largest at-sea processor of pollock and holds the largest allocation of wild Pacific hake. The company operates a fleet of seven vessels in the North Pacific Ocean and Bering Sea. The EPA cited the company and the owners of its vessels for hundreds of violations along the Oregon and Washington coasts. Those include discharging waste in a protected area, failure to monitor discharges, and reporting inaccurate information in required annual reports, according to a statement. 
The EPA says discharge of seafood processing waste in prohibited areas can negatively impact marine life like fish and crabs. An American seafood spokesperson said the company was notified of the allegations in March. Since then, the company says it has provided all documentation to the EPA and that it's also assigned additional staff and updated its processes to ensure reporting is, quote, complete, accurate and timely. The EPA found that American Seafoods and the owners of its vessels had noticeably more severe and much higher a much higher number of violations than other Oregon and Washington offshore fish processors during a compliance check of the industry. The EPA is requiring American Seafoods to conduct, quote, corporate-wide systemic improvements to ensure compliance with its permits and requires they pay nearly $1 million in penalties. When asked about the company's Alaska operations, the EPA spokesperson did not say whether or not the agency is currently bringing any enforcement actions against them. In August, a crew member on an American Seafoods factory trawler died at sea near Onalaska and Dutch Harbor, likely from an ammonia leak on board. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.